John chapter 5, first John chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone of God overcomes this world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Thanks, Carol. Uh, well, good morning. Uh, my name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here at City on a Hill. Uh, really great if this is your first time with us. Um, we'd love to welcome you and love to meet you over coffee afterwards. Uh, as we come to God's word, let's uh, begin in prayer. Father, you know what we face each and every day. We're not unaware of Satan's schemes that he would love nothing more than to drag your people away from your truth and into the world and destruction. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be at work now, that you would re remove distractions and remove the hardness from our hearts, the scales from our eyes, so that we can see your truth and believe and be saved. And for those of us who are saved, that we would put off death and live for eternal life. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder, have you ever experienced a life-threatening situation? Um, around once a week, I work in ED at the Wellington Hospital. And uh, when something urgent needs to be done in the emergency room, you hear it over the loudspeaker. Uh, the, the triage nurse's voice will come over uh, the loudspeaker, and, and you might have heard it if you've been in ED. I know a lot of you work in ED as well. Um, ambulance, code three. Or waiting room, code two. Now, on Monday, I heard 
waiting room code one. Uh, now, when you tell people that you work in the ED, uh, people think it's dramatic all the time, like this photo, right? People running around everywhere, saving lives. Um, but the reality is most patients aren't that sick. Uh, let's face it, some of them really should be seeing their GP, but either they can't afford it or they're not willing to wait two weeks to see them. That's a, a good waiting time, I think, at the moment. A lot of people are really sick and really need to be there, but usually they're not about to die. They can wait a few hours and they'll be fine. And so a code one is pretty rare. Um, if you know what the triage numbers are, basically it's an order of urgency. The code one, well, they need to be seen right now. In fact, as soon as a code one is called, you stop triaging the patient and you start treating them. And the triage happens as you're treating them. Uh, it is a matter of life and death. There is nothing more urgent than a code one. Uh, if you've got a fever or a cut finger, you could be waiting hours, maybe even days at the moment in ED. But if you've got a heart attack or a stroke, you're going to be seen within minutes. A code one is even more urgent than that. Now, you might not realize this this morning, sitting comfortably in your seats, but you and I are facing a life-threatening situation. Not just now, not just this morning, but every day of our lives. Do you see the significance of the last part of the passage that was read? Did you notice it? Verse 12, it would be really helpful to have the Bible in front of you, make sure that I'm not making this up. This is what God's word is saying. Verse 12, 1 John 5 verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Do you see what's at stake here? It's not being overly dramatic to say this is a life and death situation, a life-threatening situation that we face every day. See, the world is telling us that this is a lie. In fact, sometimes it's yelling at us, it's okay. You can have life without God. And it's the oldest lie in the book, right? You shall not surely die, said the serpent to Eve, Genesis 3. But that's what John's saying, isn't it? There are people who have life and people who don't. Those who have the Son of God, in other words, those who believe in Jesus, who trust in Jesus, who hope in Jesus, who have given their lives to Jesus, the Son of God, they, and only they, have life. If you don't have the Son of God, you don't have life. It's black and white, life and death. Now, it doesn't match what we see with our eyes, right? I mean, people look perfectly alive. They've got a pulse, they're breathing, their eyes are open, uh, they're walking around, they're, they're talking. They would have to wait days in emergency if they were trying to get seen. But Sean's saying, if they don't have Jesus, they don't have life. Now, is this how you see reality? The people around you, your neighbours, the people on the bus, the, your colleagues, your friends and families, members who don't know Jesus. 
Without Jesus, they don't have life. Do you see the urgency? Do you see what's at stake? Does it confront you? Because it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to see the world this way. Because, partly because Satan is doing all he can to get us to believe that same old lie. You shall not surely die. They shall not surely die. In fact, the lie is deeper than that. It's you're missing out. They've got something that you don't have. Well, our passage today, it puts it before us two options. The way of the world and the way of the word. I want us to look at this passage as it responds to three lies that the world is constantly bombarding us, that all stem from that one big lie of Satan in the garden. And the first lie is this. I'll give you the lie and God's response, and then we'll have a look at the Bible. The lie is this. The world says God's commands are burdensome. God's word says you have overcome the world. Let's have a look from verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Do you see what John is saying there? If you believe that Jesus is Christ, then you are born of God. And if you are born of God, then you will love God. And you will love those who are born of God. In other words, you will love his only begotten Son, Jesus, and those brothers and sisters of yours who are also born of God. And if you love God, you will also do what he says. See, people love Jesus, right? They love the idea of Jesus. They, they love him like Gandhi or like chocolate. Sure, if loving God makes you happy, uh, if you get a spiritual kick out of going to church, go for it. We love God we love the parts of God that make us feel good, that give us the strength to endure in hard times, that, that help us achieve the things that we want to achieve. But that's as long as he doesn't try and tell me what to do with my life. As soon as God starts telling me what to do with my life, well, I don't want that, God. See, we, we say we love God, but we actually don't love God at all. We, we love the God of our own imagination. Not the true and living God who calls us to obedience, to obey his commands. But John's reminding us here that you can't separate loving God from obeying God. In fact, did you see there in verse 3, obeying God is loving God. Have a look at verse 3 with me. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. So you can't love God and ignore his commands. To love God is to keep his commands. But the world says, well, that just sounds like too much hard work. 
I mean, why constrain yourself? Why take things so seriously? Why would you let some antiquated, patriarchal, religious, oppressive document tell you what to do with your life? Break free. Get with the times. It's so old-fashioned. Stop worrying about what the fairy godfather in the sky cares about. Just do whatever makes you happy. That's what our world is saying to us, right? Sure, you can have a bit of Jesus if he makes you happy, but obeying his commands? Really? Even when it hurts? No, thank you. So why? Why would we want to obey God's commands? Well, look what John says next after verse 3. His commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. See, the commands of God aren't burdensome. Do you remember what Jesus says about burdens in Matthew 11? He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he says in John 16, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. See, the world promises freedom, right? Freedom from the oppression of religion. But it deceptively enslaves people. It holds us captive to the desires of our own hearts, the worries of life, the constant disappointment of trying to find satisfaction in the things that just don't satisfy. That's what the world offers. The promise of freedom and the lie that is actually enslavement. But by contrast, God, he's not an oppressive master. He's a loving shepherd. He calls us to obedience, to obey his good and true word. Not to impress us or control us, but for our own good. He knows what's best for us. He made us. And as we love him, as we believe in the son and obey him, he sets us free from this captivity, the enslavement, the emptiness, the hopelessness of this world. Don't listen to the lies of this world, the lies of Satan. God, God's commands are not burdensome. Love God and do what he says. Because if you're one of his children, if you trust in the Son, then you have overcome the world. But how do we know? How do we know that the Bible is from God, that, that Jesus is the Son of God? Like, it's a big call to make, right? Will you trust in the God of the Bible? Well, that's the second lie that John addresses here. See, the world says, well, sure, Jesus may have existed, but, and maybe he was a great teacher, uh, a great leader, um, but the Son of God? Yeah, nah. <laughs> Made up. Uh, just a myth. Just fan fiction that got out of hand. It's a nice story, but it's not true. But John says, wait a second. You're willing to believe human witnesses. A court will declare someone guilty on the basis of the testimony of two or three witnesses that are in agreement. 
And yet in Jesus, we not only have human testimonies, but the testimony of God himself. And not one testimony from God, not two, but three witnesses from God. That's what John's talking about in this slightly confusing section in the middle of the passage. Um, Have a read with me from verse 5, and we'll see if we can work it out. Verse 5, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Now, we'll get to the water and blood part, um, but before we get there, do you see John's argument here? Did you notice how he's using legal language, like a court case? He's talking about three that testify, verse 7, and that they're all in agreement, verse 8, and that they're all about the Son, that's the content of the, the testimony, and they're all from God, that's the source of the testimony, verse 9. So not only is there a reliable number of witnesses, two or three, which is a biblical principle, two or three witnesses, Uh, the witnesses also come from a reliable source. Not simply human, but divine. This is the testimony of God himself about his son. And what is it that they are all in agreement about his son? Verse 11, this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. See, whenever you get to a confusing part of the Bible, it's really helpful to work out what you can work out before you get to the tricky bits, rather than get too distracted by what's the water mean and what's the blood mean. Um, But whatever the water and the blood and the spirit are talking about, they are from God, they testify about the Son, and they testify that eternal life is found in Him. So if that's what we already know about the water and the blood, um, It might sound a bit cryptic, but if you do a bit of digging in the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus' life, that's the first four books of the New Testament. Um, If you're not too familiar with the Bible, they're called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, They're called the Gospels. So if we think about what the Gospels say about water and blood, and is there anything around water and blood that points to eternal life in Jesus? Well, I think... John has two pretty clear events in mind. Um, Firstly, Jesus coming by water must be his baptism, right? Where Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan and the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove and a voice from heaven cries, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. That was Jesus coming by water. And God was declaring, he was testifying Jesus to be his son. And it's no accident that God made this declaration, this testifying at Jesus' baptism. Because what baptism represents is the washing of sins, right? 
the washing away of sin and the new birth in the spirit into eternal life. Uh, Just as an aside, if you haven't been baptized, we'd love to chat to you. Put it on your comment card. We've got some baptisms coming up. But baptism continues to be the significant act uh, using water, which Christians have used through the centuries to testify to what Jesus does in washing away our sins, giving us new life. And so I think that's what coming by water means, uh, his baptism. And likewise, if we think about the Gospels and where blood might indicate something about Jesus and eternal life, it's got to be referring to the cross, right? Jesus himself, he shared his final meal with his disciples. And he, as he did that, he was teaching them the significance of his death, what it would mean for them. And also giving them a symbolic meal to remember his death by. A meal uh, which we're going to share shortly this morning. And as Jesus showed them what he was doing in his death, he, he said these words, drink from this, showing them the cup of wine. All of you, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shared for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And we see God testify that sins are forgiven in the cross, right? As Jesus lay on that God-forsaken cross, darkness spread over the land. And as he cried his last, the temple curtain was torn in two, saying that the dividing wall of our sin between us and God has been broken. And then ultimately, God raised Jesus from the dead to show that sin had been defeated, that death no longer has the victory. So that's what the blood is referring to. Christ on the cross, dying for our sins. And thirdly, the spirit that testifies, the spirit who is the truth. Not so much an event here, but the one, the person who reveals these events. The spirit is the one who spoke at the baptism. The Spirit is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. The Spirit is the one who caused the apostles to record what they saw and witnessed so that we can receive this testimony now. And the Spirit is the one at work now when we open God's Word in our hearts to reveal the truth to us. He testifies to our souls. That's the Holy Spirit. There's so much confusion about the Holy Spirit in the modern church, but the main work that we see in the scriptures of the Holy Spirit is he is the revealer of truth. In fact, he is truth. And so given the weight of evidence of Jesus, his baptism declared to be the son, his death, resurrection, giving life as a ransom for many, pouring out his blood for the forgiveness of sins, and the Holy Spirit who orchestrates it all, who recorded it all, and who testifies to our own hearts. Anyone who doesn't believe this testimony is making God out to be a liar. See, people sound kind of smart and nuanced, right? When they say, oh, Jesus was just a moral teacher and he he became a bit of a legend. But what they're doing is taking God to court, thinking they know better. 
Who do you think will win that court case? A human or the creator of the universe? See, when you actually read the Gospels with an open mind, more importantly, with an open heart, praying, God, is this true? Is this really your son? The truth of Jesus is plain to see. See, we think people have a brain problem, that they just need more evidence, that they just need God to make himself clearer, to produce some compelling proof that he's real. But it's not usually a brain problem. It's a heart problem. People don't want to believe. They'd rather call the true and living God a liar than have to give up their pretend gods that they love so dearly. I wonder, does that describe you this morning? Do you love your pretend gods and so you're hiding from the God of truth? Because once you see it, you can't unsee the truth of God. It's beautiful, it's powerful, it's compelling, it's real. Now, it's not that Christians never have doubts, that once you see it, you can never doubt. I've been through my own seasons of significant doubt. But if you're not sure whether this is true, whether you've never been convinced, or whether you're doubting your faith, can I encourage you, read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and come to them with an open heart, asking God, Is this your son? Show me your son, if this is really him. Because it's a matter of life and death, right? Which brings us to our final lie, which is really the most pervasive, the most insidious, most destructive lie of all. It's this, that if you live for Jesus, then you're missing out. See, if this life is all we have to hope in, then let us eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. They've got it right. If, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we're to be pitied more than anyone because we're wasting our time with eternity that doesn't exist. But if the Son of God has come, to free us from the power of death, to give us eternal life, then we're going to look back at these these years, these decades on earth, the struggles, the heartache, the tears, the pain. It will be gone in a blink of an eye when we compare it to eternity. An eternity of everything as it should be. Relationships restored. Glorious bodies that don't break down. Satisfying work. And hearts that are no longer held captive by sinful deceptions, but set free to worship and enjoy God and one another and creation forever. To live and to love as we were made to be. That's the future hope that we have if we believe in the Son. 
And our world is bombarding us with the lie that we are somehow missing out. If you don't have this new product, you're missing out. If you don't have this kind of relationship, you're missing out. If you don't achieve these things or gain this level of income, you're missing out. If you could just have those things and lie down on your own private beach and breathe in a deep sigh and say, ah, this is the life. But it's all lies. None of those things will truly satisfy. Because you and I, we were not made for this life. We were made for so much more. An eternity with God. Who's missing out? Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Do you have eyes to see the lies the world is telling you? You aren't missing out. They're the ones missing out. Big time. We need to hear this truth. We need to hear it every day because our world, Satan, is shouting lies at us constantly. I love and hate something about John. I love how he's so wonderfully black and white. I hate it at the same time. But he's so black and white, isn't he? No Jesus, no life. No Jesus, no life. If you know Jesus, then you know life. If you have no Jesus, then you have no life. It's that black and white. Why not do yourself a favor right now? If you believe in the Son of God, if you are born of God, if you love God, why not just stop trying to have a bit of both? Trying to have a foot in both camps. Having a bet both ways. A little bit of hope in the things of this world and a little bit of hope in Jesus and the things of eternity. Save yourself a whole lot of heartache, a whole lot of disappointment, a whole lot of wasted energy, and just go all in for Jesus. Every dollar, every word, every deed, every day, give it all to Him. I promise you, you will not be disappointed. Let me close with these words from our Lord in Matthew 6, which have really spoken to me throughout the years of following the Son. This is from Matthew 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No Jesus, no life. No Jesus, no life. Let's pray we would know this truth deep down in our soul and that we would receive eternal life and live for him. Let's pray.
as the music, musicians, um, if you'd like to get up as I pray. Father, the world is shouting at us. This life is all there is. Don't worry about Jesus. Just take what you want. Take whatever will make you happy. But you know what will truly make us happy, Lord. You know what we were made for. You know that there is so much more on offer than what this world can offer. And so, Lord, for each of us here this morning, would you help us to stop loving the world, to stop hoping in the world, and to hope in Jesus, to hope in eternal life in his name. And we thank you that you promise to give us families, homes, everything we need, and much more in eternal life. Lord, we thank you for all these promises that are yes in Jesus. And we pray that you would make him bigger and bigger in our lives and in our hearts each day until the day he returns or he calls us home. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.